up, Debating Metalheads, and welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. Today, we've decided not to do any greatest hits or any worst of first or anything like that. No, today, we're doing something different altogether. Sometimes, despite talent and good songs, a band doesn't get things right the first time and might have to change things up to break a new market. We're going to discuss albums from a few bands that, for one reason or another, were remixed, remastered, and re-released before they really hit it big. In most cases, it's the band's first album that may have been self-released, and their new record company wants to share wants a share of the new profits. Or, in some cases, the record label had different ideas that they thought might help the band sell more records in a new market. So today we picked eight bands to take a look at and deep dive on the subject. So sit back, relax, turn it up to 11, and let the debate begin. Remixed, remastered, and re-released. Chris, what are the eight bands that we're going to be discussing tonight? Uh, so tonight we're going to be discussing Dawkin, Whitesnake, ACDC, Eister, Motley Crue, Seether, Creed, and Godsmack. And for those of you who've been listening to us for a long time, there's a few bands on here that we've never talked about, and uh, those are some of the selections that you made today. <laughs> yeah, so we're bringing up a bunch of bands that we really haven't put any focus on here, uh, you know, like Godsmack and Creed and Seether. We've never really talked about them. And Iced Earth, we've kind of vaguely mentioned a couple times in the past. So yeah, it's a it's a lot different today, which is good. Different things are good. New options. I told you we we're going to be doing that this year, guys. So, all right. Um, we got a eight bands here. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Um, you know what? Let's talk about the band that kind of sparked the idea for this one. So, um, I'm going to talk about Dawkin first. Okay. And so Dawkin released in, uh, in 1981, uh, break in the chains. It was under the French label Carrera. Um, very kind of different time period in their history, really before they even bridged the market into the U S they were finding some popularity in, in Europe. Um, but it wouldn't be till a couple of years later that they really came over to the U S um, at this time, the first set of records and George Lynch has said it's about 500. Uh, there's kind of some discrepancies here and there, but there was about 500 pressings that were under the name Don Dock and breaking the chains. So if you have one of those, you are in possession of a very rare piece of history. Um, so basically there's there's some pretty substantial differences between the the album, even though the uh, the track listing is essentially the same. Um, the 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 order is different, and there is uh, one song that became pretty much an entirely different song uh, lyrically, but still retains the same melody. So base, basically from beginning to end, they're both 10-track albums. They have the same songs for the most part, but there are some changes. So both of them start with Breaking the Chains on the original and then Breaking the Chains. So they brought the G back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they found the G? <laughs> they found the G. They found the G spot. Yeah, so, look at, lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> By, it took them two years, but if they found it. No wonder the chicks loved them so much. <laughs> so the original track listing was Breaking the Chains, Seven Thunders, I Can't See You, In the Middle, 
we're illegal. Paris, stick to your guns, young girls, felony, and Knight Rider. Now, right off the bat, you're going to hear We're Illegal. If you're familiar with the 1983 release, We're Illegal became Live to Rock, Rock to Live, uh, which honestly is a much better song. The lyrics are a lot more um, fitting of the track. Way, way. It's funny because that song, the, the, the melodies, the riff, nothing changed other than the lyrics. The lyrics. Much better version with the, with, with the lyrics for Live to Rock, Rock to Live. Much better. And they fit better. Like the, the, the actual way they fit into the melody works better. Well, we're like, <laughs> what doesn't make sense is the fact that they're that they're like shouting and chanting "We're illegal." Like, what? What are you in a freaking different country or something like that? What the hell? You know, yeah, it, it made no sense. I mean, I guess it was true because all that stuff took place in Europe when they recorded it and all that stuff. So yeah, maybe they they were there illegally they were or something. Illegal alien. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's an improvement. Um, I would say there is also an oddity in the track listing. You heard me say young girls and then felony. You never want to have those in the same vicinity. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why they were illegal on this copy. Uh, so, um, the biggest differences, though, are that the guitar sound is much more raw on the original release. Uh, the overall sound is a bit duller. Uh, it, it does have a heavier front end of the album. So it starts with Breaking the Chain, Seven Thunders. It does feel heavier from the beginning, and then it goes into the softer stuff. I think they mixed it up a little bit better with the, with the 1983 release, where it's, it's kind of spread out a little bit better. The track listing, I think, makes more sense. Uh, the production is drastically better. The sound's much fuller. They re-recorded certain parts to kind of fix uh, things or, or you know, add to them. Uh, from what I understand, some of the work was done on the solos too. Uh, you know, George had improved. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of live versions on albums, but I think for the most part, Paris is burning versus Paris works. Uh, you know, the it, the album ends with it, and it is a live track, which kind of gives it. A little bit of gravitas and makes them sound like, hey, we're in front of these gigantic crowds. Um, that being said, this wasn't the album that really helped them break the market, even though this was their first attempt. It was considered a flop by the label, but it did allow them to get to their next album, which they kind of talked the label into doing. And as we all know, Dawkin. Yeah, you know, blew up from there. You know, the appearances on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, et cetera, really helped. And it, it wouldn't be, what was it? Tooth and Nail was the next album. Tooth and Nail was the next album. And Tooth and Nail, I mean, is a banger from beginning to end. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. a really good album. And it's a good thing that the record company decided to stick with them. And that was one of the things that, like, I'm listening to this album and I'm like, I can understand why the record company wanted to dump them. But at the same time, I'm sitting there, sitting there thinking to myself, wait a second, what happened to the time of developing artists, you know? And yeah. this was a time when, when things like that happened. It, this wasn't uh, an age of I need quick satisfaction at all. So the fact that Electra wanted to dump him after one record because the album was a flop, well, first of all, you got to think about what happened. I mean, it, the songs are already two years old. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so you you at, you haven't had the band write any new material. They took the same material, reworked it, and you know they did. They basically created one new song by changing the lyrics and uh, to to uh, live to rock. So I get it that it was a flop, but to sit there and say, oh, you know, we're considering dropping them, and then having you know Don and, and the band and, and and management convince the label, hey, give us another shot. I mean, obviously that was a, a master, masterful piece of negotiating right there. Negotiating. It was a masterful piece. It was a masterful piece of negotiating for them to, re- to remain on Electro Records, and it worked out for Electro for sure. One thing that helped them as well was by the the time they recorded the video for Breaking the Chains. Uh, um, Jeff Pilson had joined the band and he was in the video. The video had some cool style to it. And I think it kind of opened up some of the eyes to people. Um, you know, Oh, this is the band. This was, this was something that kind of helped them bridge the gap until their next album came out, which was really what broke the market for them. That being said, you know, it's, it's not a bad album by any means. I think the 1983 version is definitely better. Um, but there are some cool things. I do like the rawness of the guitar on the original. Uh, what kind of, what's your opinion on, on the two? I mean, I, I prefer the electro version. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's, it's a little thicker sounding, a um, lot thicker the, sounding. The, the, yeah, the guitars, obviously George's guitar sounds much thicker. It sounds less raw. It, it, it went to me, in my opinion, breaking the chains, uh, the 1981 career release went from being a demo, which is what it sounds like to being, I wouldn't even call it a major label release because it still has a real raw sound to it, but it's much better. It's like I said, much thicker sound. Um, The drums are a little bit, you know, they're compressed and flat along the way. They're not very dynamic, but Dawkins drums have never been dynamic. Like, I don't know what they do, but they've, they've never had that, dynamic sound go up and down. It's just always been very compressed sounding and, and, and even, yeah. but that that's not, that's not a takeaway from, from docking. That's just the way their sound was. Uh, they were more guitar oriented band and I get it, but I, I mean, yeah, I prefer this version so much better. The only thing I, you know, you may like Paris is burning the live version. Yeah. It gives a kind of a, yeah, we played live to a, a million people, whatever, but I actually like the studio version of Paris um, I, I, I would always rather have a studio version. Right. I just think by putting it at the end of the album on a brand new band, essentially, it, it probably helped a little bit in some capacity. Oh, like they're, they play live. They play in front of a lot of people. I still personally would always have a studio version. Yeah. I mean, for me, I would have left Paris studio version. And if you were going to do something put it in a bonus track, you know, I mean, it's not like it was unheard of, you know, I yeah. guess on, on records it, it is kind of unheard of, but they could have easily put it on a cassette because that's real. That was real popular back then. Just throwing an extra bonus track on cassettes, but who knows? I mean, it, it, it worked out the way it worked out. Cause I always, I always was curious as to why am I listening? Why, why, how did they have a live song? I don't know. It, was, it always threw me off that they had Paris is running live. Like, where's the original? That's what I wanted to know. And I, for years, I didn't know that, um, that the original version Paris 
was the same song. Not that I, I didn't know much about the original European release until, you know, the, the internet age came about, yeah. you know? So, all right, let's talk about something else here. Um, I'm going to, let's, let's go ahead and talk about Creed. You know, Ooh, it's a new band we're talking about. <laughs> a brand new band. Yes. We've, we have not talked about Creed and, and a lot of people are out there going, they're not heavy metal. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not, or they didn't start out as a pop band. That's for sure. Um, but you know, success does things to you and, uh, it happens. I mean, there's lots of, look, people want to get on people's shit for whatever, you know, they need to remember there are certain bands from the seventies and eighties that they had acoustic songs. They had, you know, love songs in there and they were still considered metal. They were still considered hard rock. So, you know, get over it people. Okay. My own prison came out in 1997. Uh, it was first released on blue collar records. It was a self-release. They, they basically paid for it uh, themselves. Um, produced by a guy named John Kurzweig. And I got to say, I mean, the I listened to the two side by side. They're very, very similar. There's not a lot of differences. Um, but it definitely was remixed. There was some subtleness enough to kind of say, oh, I get it. So, like, it, it, for the most part, most every song on on the blue collar version compared to wind up records which is what it was re-released on only two months later by the way which is which is in and of itself an anomaly to to get signed by a a, a label and have your album remixed and you know re-released within two months it's pretty quick mm, yeah um, that is so, so all the songs are about five to ten seconds longer certain songs um we're longer than that. Like my own prison is a whole extra section. It's 45 seconds longer. Um, the, uh, a song like illusion, which is on the wind up version had a different title. It was illusion on the blue collar version. It, again, mix being different. No, but I, 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 yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I said it that way so that people understand. Cause I can say illusion. Yeah, yeah, and it still sounds the same because someone's going to make fun of my accent. <laughs> so what do you mean you don't understand? It's illusion, not, not illusion, illusion. You know? Right, exactly. Yeah, I say tomato, you say tomato. <laughs> uh, no, I say tomato. What are you talking about? No. <laughs> um, so I, I guess the the biggest biggest difference of all the songs that are on there is um, the song "What's His Life For." There's a there's about it's about twenty five seconds longer. It has an uh, intro at the beginning of the of the song, and that's what an intro is. <laughs> that, has, that has a like a like a it's the intro to the intro, right? Mark Tremonti is like dueling on the guitar, and it is something that he actually does in concert when they play this song, but they left it off on the wind up version. They just chopped it off, and we'll talk about something similar that happened uh, on another song and another band uh, later on in the show. Um, so that was uh, interesting. You know, the song one is 18 seconds longer. It kind of just continues to play as opposed to fading out. They just faded it uh, on the wind-up version. Not a lot of huge differences. For me, the biggest difference in the mix is, is the drums seem to be a little bit more punchier on the wind-up uh, version, which I like. 
Um, they're a little more muted on the blue collar version. Um, and the drums also seem to be a little bit more up in the mix. Not like, not, not like Lars Ulrich up in the mix, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> but, uh, it, you know, definitely a little farther, a little, a little snappier. Um, I don't know, there's something more prominent about the drums. And of course, if uh, anyone takes a look at the difference between the two album covers, the logo is different. The placement of the name of the, of the album title is different. Um, when they released it again on wind up, the official logo uh, would be what they use for the rest of their career which ended up on that record. So it's not huge. What did you think of it when you listened to it? So I had a hard time kind of finding the differences, but like what you said, the biggest thing that stood out to me was the drums kind of being a little bit more snappy. Like you said, um, I had never really listened to this album before. My sister was a big Creed fan. Uh, I've n- never really been much of, of one. I like some of the guitar work. Uh, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of Alter Bridge, so there's that that connection that's there. Um, but I just, I, so Creed was never really my jam. Um, but um, what I did notice, this album sounds quite a bit different than the rest of the stuff in their catalog. It's a little more somber, a little more alt rock i guess where the stuff that would follow was more upbeat is that a fair assessment i i could i could agree with that i mean knowing their catalog as as well as i do mm-hmm. i can see that it, this def, definitely you know like when you listen to songs that 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 ode starts off at the beginning it's it's quiet it's somber it has a heaviness to it the heavy parts on these on these songs are slightly heavier than the heavy parts on the rest of, the, of their, their uh, catalog. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, I agree, you know, songs like my own prison, it's, it's a somber song, pity for a dime, slow and somber in America, you know, slow and somber. Um, I mean, it's, but there's also hope, I guess is part of it. Like yeah, it's not it's not dark and, and right. dreary, when you're coming to the dark. end, all of a sudden you you sense you sense this this feeling of hope and and a, a look towards the future, which is interesting because you know then they come with their their next album and it's just a completely different vibe. So, so one thing one thing I thought was pretty incredible, like so we don't talk much about the album covers and stuff. You said the the, the logo was different, the the artwork's mm-hmm. a bit different. They basically replicated everything they did on the original um you know the the out the cover itself is slightly different the back cover they basically did the same thing they just used a new version of the image it looks way more professional uh like a like an actual photographer really you know kind of up to the ante there and the graphic design is much better so that is kind of interesting it, it you know, that is a selling point. You're picking up an album. You want to see something that's visually appealing and they really improved it quite a bit. So, um, I would say just for the little bit of reason where the, the drums sound better, that makes the wind up version better. It sounds a little bit better. I agree. I agree. I mean, the only thing I would say that I like in this, it's, it's literally like four seconds <laughs> maybe not even the intro to unforgiven where the hi-hat does the countdown um so i love when i hear that like when you hear a song start off and go tss, 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 sort of like the back and black thing yeah. 
mm-hmm. right? They cut that out on the wind-up version, and I thought that's something they probably could have kept, you know, but... Things hey. like that, I, I agree. They give it a little bit more spice, more flavor. They, they give it a little bit more of, like, you're almost there with the band kind of feeling. It's kind of weird, you know? Yeah. But, so... All right, what's the next one we're going to do? So let's talk about ACDC. So I think most of you out there are probably pretty familiar with the band. If you're not, um, Akadaka. I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> yes, Akadaka, if you're uh, Australian. Um, ACDC released their first album, High Voltage, in Australia in 1975, followed by at the end of the year, they released their second album, TNT. Now, when 1976 rolled around and they released their international version of High Voltage, they mostly took the tracks from TNT and then two tracks from High Voltage and compiled those into the international version of High Voltage. Um, So the track listing of, let's talk about the international one first. That, That would be what everybody knows. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Rock and roll singer, the Jack, Livewire, TNT, Can I Sit Next to You Girl, A Little Lover, She's Got Balls, and High Voltage. So, like I said, most of that was taken from TNT, where it's a long way to the top, rock and roll singer, the Jack, Livewire, TNT, Can I Sit Next to You Girl, and High Voltage were all took from, taken from that album. Um, the other two tracks that were left off of that album for the international release were Rocker, which would later appear on Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, and School Days, which would later, much, much later, appear on Bonfire, which was a, a compilation set that had some live albums and then, oddly enough, Back in Black in its entirety. Um, <laughs> this is a strange one, isn't it? Strange one, which it was a bonfire. It's all about Bon Scott, and they put black, back and black on it. So. Conspiracy theories, exactly. Um, so high voltage. Most of that stuff ended up on Jailbreak or seventy four Jailbreak for the U.S. or international release. So baby, please don't go. Soul Stripper, you ain't got a hold on me. And show business, along with Jailbreak, were. The 74 jailbreak. Um, so only She's Got Balls and Little Lover came from this album, which was, the again, the original High Voltage. Um, stick Around. I don't know if that's ever been released on anything else. Do you? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> stick Around. If I'm not mistaken, isn't Stick Around the, the first song that uh, Mr. I Can't Stop Playing ACDC songs, Dave Evans, uh, was on? And then they re-recorded it. No, that was um, that was. Can I sit next to you, girl? Was it uh, okay? I, I mean, I can I it sit might, next to you, girl? Was the first single they ever released? It may that may have been the B side then. It might have been, yeah. And then love song, oh Gene. So, oh yeah, wow. <laughs> so those are the only two songs that have never really made circulation again in any other form. Um, but as you can see, most of it was taken from TNT, which was a much stronger album. In fact, the track listing, the first five tracks are exactly the same. So um, for me, like I like having them in their original forms. Whenever I was able to complete my full ACDC collection, um, it was based around the Australian versions because that's what the band originally intended to release. So for me, I prefer those. 
Um, there's not a lot of difference. Like if you're going to listen to TNT versus high voltage, there's almost no difference. So it's, it's really your own preference for the most part. Um, but like I said, for me, I, I just like having them in their original forms. So I don't really understand ACDC's history with all the albums being rearranged. We've talked about this before on previous episodes. I know you have some history with it where, you know, you were a fan at the time and then, you know, they're releasing one album with Brian Johnson. Then they're releasing Dirty Deeds Done Cheap, which was an earlier album with Bon Scott. And it, it probably confused a lot of people. Um, oh, but, yeah, it did. But now in hindsight, we have access to all this stuff. I think it's worth listening to the original cuts. Um, you know, so the, the one thing here on this one, so the episode that we're doing is called Remix, Remastered, and Re-Released. So this one was not a remix. It was not a remaster. It was a realignment of songs. I guess it was definitely re-released. Um, it's a re-release in essence because they're yeah. calling it high voltage, but it's basically TNT with a couple high voltage songs. Now, and I get why they changed the title. I mean, I was literally just thinking about it right now. I mean, TNT, explosives, you you know, you don't want to get the wrong impression, especially from, you know, something internationally, especially in the U.S., um, you know, with a lot of, and even back then in the mid-70s, the the conservativeness, um, something, a title like that would just be kind of like um, provocative. So I I get them changing the title for the international release. Um, and then, you know, they, all they did was say, you know what, let's call it the, the thing you called it before high voltage. Um, so it made sense. They, they even changed the album cover significantly. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and the funny thing is between, you know, high voltage had, um, the European cover is even different than what ended up becoming the, the, the famous, uh, international version that we all know here in, in the States. And that's really interesting look especially with a lot of pink and different colors it's very strange and a dog peeing on a generator or oh no that's uh that's oh was that the um that was the high voltage the original cover the original high voltage cover yes the dog peeing on the cover that's that looks like an electric box you know yeah yeah that one's cool you know but then when they so i like that cover and then you know that was the one that had all the 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 songs that ended up being on 74 jailbreak right so mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's so weird how they went around, went about this. I mean, it only had eight songs. So it's almost like a, a, a cross between the EP and a full length album. And, uh, they just were, Oh, so you were talking about the original European cover for the, yes, for the yeah. I originally, yeah, I was originally talking about the European cover for high voltage. That was the international edition, which had, which had kind of exaggerated body you know, yeah, uh, anatomy for, for Bond, you right. know, and almost in the same way, Dirty Deeds Done Cheap had his giant chicken leg arm. <laughs> yeah. 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 ACDC up until Powerage, right, is extremely inconsistent on their album cover releases 
there's something different for every country. <laughs> like, and, and you know, it, it's for some reason, like for instance, the, the Rolling Stones went through that same thing. The Beatles went through that same thing at the, the beginning of their career. Uh, I don't know what it is about record companies wanting to do stuff like that, but that's the way it was. You know, you, you, you had different label heads, you know, you had one in Australia, you had one in England and you had one in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like they all had different ideas and they were like, you know what, we're going to, you know, you're going to release yours over there in your country. It's never going to go over here, you know, and but that's not true because there's imports, you know, and then we're going to release this here in the UK like this. And then, you know, the one in the United States is completely different, you know, and I, I've never been a big fan of that. And I, it, this was very confusing, you know, at first, because high voltage is the stuff that's on 74 jailbreak, you know, the original Australian release TNT is mostly stuff that's on high voltage international release. It's just like, what the hell, dude? Just do one thing. <laughs> so, and then it, that's the other thing too. If you buy all this stuff in Australia, this shit's all the, the Australian releases. So it's all kind of wacky. Yeah. You know, I would love to go to Australia just so I could find that shit. Cause they, I would they love put- to have the Australian release of highway to hell. Now that, that one's Oh, so you mean cool. the one with the fire background? Black- yeah. Yes, that's very cool. Now, I do. I personally have TNT on vinyl. Um, I did it because, um, if I'm not mistaken, I was seeing somebody, and she had that. Now, this was many years ago. Um, she had this, and I said, can I borrow it? I borrowed it. I think there was a – I don't know if I have Dirty D. Oh, yeah, it was Dirty D's and High Voltage I borrowed. And – we stopped seeing each other and somehow I kept the records. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but I have them still. And now she's listening. Like, yeah, yeah she's listening. Yeah. I want them back. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, ACDC's career with that first album is kind of weird. Um, Dirty Deeds changed. Um, they, Dirty Deeds is even stranger because they, they changed some of the songs like they did with, with uh, TNT and High Voltage, but then they changed covers and uh, what was the other thing? Um, oh, they changed the different art later. Well, yeah, but like like the version of Dirty Deeds that's on the American or the international release is different. And then when they released it on CD, it was cut shorter than they, then they reissued it and they made it longer. And there's like four different versions of dirty deeds, the official release out there. And it's just re- weird. Yeah. I mean, there, some of the, the tracks are shorter length. Some of the, uh, like there's a fade out. I want to say on one track, there's mm-hmm. yeah, or multiple tracks. Like there's just lots of oddities and the mixing and, and, and changes for dirty right. deeds. So yeah, that one's worth mentioning as well. Um, I think those first three yeah, are worth mentioning are. because let there be rock also had some issues in the international, you know, they problem child shows up, you know, like on two different albums. Mm-hmm. Problem child is on the original version of dirty deeds. And then it's on the international version. And then also on let there be rock. Cause let there be rock came out earlier in the international market so it's on the international version of that one so there's some oddities in their early catalog for sure oh, there's some serious oddities i mean look certain songs that they left off i get like you know rock and peace okay it's not the greatest song in the world um but like leaving off jailbreak 
from Dirty D's when they when they went international. I yeah, that was like well, what, what such you, a good song. And they had a video for it and everything. So it's like, why would you do that? You know, I mean, you 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 pushed it in you know in in Australia. It's a really good song. Why did you leave it off? I mean, I don't understand what what the record companies were thinking leaving that song off. You know, changing the covers was another issue. You know, they had two different covers. Um, the, I mean, each of the first three albums had different covers internationally and in Australia. I don't get that. You know, that that that, that didn't make sense whatsoever. Yeah, I I don't really know. So that's so for them, ACDC. This so that's the biggest thing. That, that they did in terms of the record companies being involved to try and make something better. Was it better? I mean, you know, in hindsight, we can sit there and say, oh yeah, it was, you know, it was genius by, by the record companies, but it wasn't. I don't think so. In hindsight, I, I think it was a bad move. I don't think it helped anything. I really don't. I think you could have easily just released the, the original version of TNT and just said, you know, this is TNT put it out there or maybe even change the album to a different name. Like you said, if, if TNT didn't work in the international market, that's fine. Just change the name. But those, those songs are pretty strong. I mean, rocker obviously was released later on the international version of, of, uh, of dirty deeds. So, you know, school days being the weakest, but I, Again, like now in hindsight, I think if you can get your hands on all the Australian versions, just go with that. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> all right. So that brings us to Godsmack, another band that we haven't talked a lot about. I think we've mentioned them a couple times, um, but we haven't talked too much about Godsmack. And they, in 1997, released or self-released an album uh, that was called All Wound Up. And I got to say this, you know, between one thing or another, Sully Erna got his chops. Uh, he was already in a in a professional band called Strip Mind. They were on a major label at one point. I actually have the record, uh, the CD. Um, so I would say I would sit there and say that that's probably where he got some of his studio savvy because this album uh, was recorded very well, um, and it sounds really good. Either version if you want to look at it that way. Um, I don't think there was much in terms of too much remixing per se done on this. Maybe there's some subtleties with the vocals and the reverb drums are pretty much almost the same identical. Okay. So when you look at the album covers or the albums, the first album that was released self-release all wound up have or has, excuse me, has almost the same songs Actually, it has all the same songs um, that ended up coming out on the re-release. Um, so I had Moon Baby, Immune, Time Bomb, Keep Away, Situation, Stress, Bad Religion, Get Up, Get Out, Now or Never, Voodoo. The only song that's different that did not show up from one, tr- from one album to the next was a song called Going Down. Oddly enough, it was released internationally in Japan as a bonus track, this version. Um, but it was not featured on the American release and then ended up being re-recorded an album later. Um, so 
when this was when this album was released or re-released, they had to basically go in and remix the end. And it was kind of like they were forced to because there was a lot of unauthorized samples that were used throughout many different songs. And so they had to go in there and say, okay, we can't use this one, we can't use this one. They literally had to take the mix and drop all those sample parts. Um, but there were some that were kept. Um, right after Keep Away, the song Time Bomb comes in and there's a spoken part from a movie that was kept. But other things, you know, like the intro to Bad Religion from All Wound Up version, they completely removed that. It was a, it was a preacher talking about religion. Um, they they had it at the beginning of the song, and then they had some something at the end of the song, completely removed. Um, other things here and there. Uh, Moon Baby, um, right around the two thirty nine mark is when it goes into like this jam breakdown type of thing. There's a bunch of people on the all wound up version that are just kind of talking and sampled here and there. And they just come repeating certain things and female noises and guys saying stuff. And there's a dude talking in the background. And then right at the end of the song, they, they repeat tolerance and pain like three times, two or three times. That's almost all of that is removed in the version that came out on Republic. And that one only has that guy who kind of like talks in the background really, really low in the mix. Um, trying to think what else, uh, the end of immune, the guitar feedback doesn't fade out on the original. It just kind of keeps going. And then it goes into the next song where in, in the Republic version, it goes and fades out. Um, a real big thing is on get up, get out. People say, Oh, it's 25 seconds longer. It's 25 seconds shorter, whatever it is. They split, uh, uh, an intro It's called somewhere or someone in London on the Republic version, but in the all wound up version, this song is just one. It's all part of get up, get out. And I get why they took it off. It's one of those things that you and I talk about all the time. Like, why can't they just make this two, two songs? And so that way you can cut straight to the right to to the song you want to hear, as opposed to having to sit through a minute and a half to two minutes of something you don't want to listen to. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they did there. It's funny you have like Judas Priest with Hellion and Electric Eye, which Hellion's so short that it really doesn't need to be separated and it would be fine. But then you have Iron Maiden, who sometimes like uh, what's the first song on um, Final Frontier? Um, you have Satellite 15 and the Final Frontier, which should be separated. So you have the option. Like, I'm always going to listen to it from beginning to end and not skip. But I, there's so many people that, like, and it's such a long intro. Me. It's half the song. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. <laughs> it is half the song. They're each four minutes. Yeah. So it makes sense to separate it. I mean, that, someone in London is a two-minute intro, essentially. Yeah. And, and so, look, if you want to listen to people walking around, you know, uh, London's, uh, you know, train station, that's great have have at it i'll go straight to get up get out that's a pretty cool song um voodoo is is a little bit different um it's the vocals are very up in the mix on the all wound up version um but on the republic version it's very even all the way across which i actually think is better there's there's the subtlety about it for me, you know, you read comments online. Oh, I like this version better. So much, you know, you get 10, 12 people in a row all like the original all wound up version. Well, 
there's a difference between sounding professional and sounding unprofessional. They've put it that way. And to me, the Republic version, there's just, it's like a step up. Everything's almost the same, but you can tell that someone said, okay, you know what? You're going to put your suit and tie on today. It's a little and, more mature. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's no difference in the songs. You know, the recordings are the same, but you know, and I like the, the track listing the way they did it better on, on uh, the Republic version. They just, I think the songs flow better you know, rather than like, you know, the all wound up ends with whatever. And that ended up being like one of their biggest songs on the Republic version. It's the second song after moon baby. I personally love moon baby. I think that song kick ass. Um, you know, and then you got whatever and you got keep away. So you got the first five songs, you got three singles and, and I personally like moon baby. So those first five songs is four songs that I really, really dig, you know, and then get up, get out comes, uh, on the eighth song. And when you look at the all wound up version, I mean, that's all over the place, really, you know, moon babies first, you know, keep away's fourth bad religion, seventh. And then it's, you followed by get up, get out. And it's, it's, uh, oh, you see, and, and, and I'm looking at this. So the first edition of, all wound up didn't even include whatever it ended up being added on later. So it, the album did end with voodoo, which that's the way it should have ended. But then they, you know, they added whatever they should have thrown it in the middle of the album rather than, uh, at the end. So I don't know. What did, what did you think of it when you listened to it? I mean, at, at first I, I had a little bit of trouble recognizing what the differences was, but you, you had mentioned that there were some effects, different samples, that kind of stuff. So I, I kind of skimmed through and and found some of the differences. I I agree. Like, it sounds a bit more mature. Uh, it's I obviously benefited them to have the, the, the record label kind of say, let's tone this down a little bit and, and, and square it up. And so, like, you know, it's funny to, to me to listen to some of these these bands because like Godsmack and Creed and you know these guys were huge when I was in high school and uh, you have personal bias sometimes based on like your interactions with people obviously like for me Creed was unbearable for me because I had to listen to them pretty much every day riding in my sister's car my older sister's car who got to choose the music <laughs> <laughs> So you have those those biases, but you know, separated by God, twenty years at this point. Um, I don't qu quite feel the same way. I may not like stuff personally, like it's not my my cup of tea. But I also, I I think, uh, let's just go back to Creed for just a second, which is interesting. Um, I think if you like a band and you sonically hear them and you enjoy it, listen to them. The Creed hate is stupid. Um, listening to Godsmack, they're still not my thing, but I didn't hate them in the same way I did when I was a, a teenager. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think, I think the studio or the major label version is better for sure. Um, sometimes studios do get it right, it seems, but, uh, obviously it's on the merits of the talent of the band. 
Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, Republic did a good job of, of getting this to a level that they said we can sell records with this, you know, and the rec, the album cover. Oh my God. So much better. <laughs> that that fucking so album. I don't know what the hell that they put on that front cover of all wound up. That's atrocious. It's fucking terrible. It looks like more like something that would have come in the early 90s for maybe a, a grunge band that was making fun of, of uh, like hair metal bands. That's to me, when I look at this album cover, that's what I think of. You know, it's, a, it's, it's like some glammed out guy or girl, which I can't really tell what it is, um, you know, strung up with, with uh, wires watching a blank TV. To me, that looks like something right out of the early 90s. It's weird to see that in 1997. Then Godsmack, the actual album, has this goth-looking chick with, you know, her makeup done, thin eyebrows, rings in her nose, and it's so edgy that it's, like, exactly 1998. <laughs> yeah, well... The, the... It's even got the tribal tattoo that, like, lots of people put around their belly button at that time. Like it, yeah. it, this album cover is exactly 1998 to me. <laughs> the, the the popcorn add-on to the to the all bond up cover just really fucking adds up, you know, spices it up. Quite honestly, I like the cover for for Godsmack. You know, when now, what is that popcorn? I didn't it's even terrible. Look, you know, when you look at it from <laughs> a, a distance, clip art you... added to <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the the chick is a little edgy. Actually, this girl. It's on the cover of the Godsmack album, the version. Um, she looks like someone I used to work with uh, at the record store. So I, every time I see it, I think of her, and she was uh, she was really cool. I, I liked her a lot, um, but it wasn't you know there was no relationship there or anything like that, and she was never going to <clears throat> be in a relationship with me or any guy for that matter. <laughs> but um, but this chick, I thought there was something. <laughs> There was something hot about her, and there's something hot about this chick on this cover too. So, uh, and I guess it's the edginess that you're talking about. Uh, her name is Tony Tiller. On this she, one, yeah. No. She, no, the girl that you used to work with that I have no way of oh. knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I did not look at the the credits at the bottom. Okay, girl on CD layout. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on. Who are we talking about next? All right, let's talk about White Snake. Uh, we're going to talk about Slide It In. Uh, there's two versions, the UK release, and then just a couple months later, they released Slide It In, the US version. Um, so the UK release is essentially, again, very similar to the, the US edition. The biggest difference being some of the personnel on the album. So the first release which was the uk release had Mick, mickey moody who had been in the band for quite a while at that time and colin hodgkinson um mickey moody on guitars college colin on bass um when they brought it over to the u.s there was a lot of circumstances that were um involved in them making the changes that they did so the the whole goal for david coverdale was to break the u.s he had talked about it many times and there was a bad relationship that had had developed over time between uh, Coverdale and Moody. They were barely talking. Um, he didn't want a Mo uh, Mickey Moody didn't want to be part of the band anymore. 
And so when he left, David Coverdale took it as the opportunity. So let, we're going to revamp this. These guys, we're going to get some good looking guys that are, you know, uh, going to work for this, this image that we're trying to cultivate. They brought in John Sykes and, and Neil Murray. And both of them are prolific musicians on their own right. Um, added a lot of features to the album, including new solos, some new guitar work, uh, new bass recording. Everything was pushed more to the front in those regards. So guitar and bass were pushed to the front, and then keyboards and drums were pushed a little bit more to the back. Um, it's a more bombastic recording. It, it feels fuller, and rightfully so. You essentially have three guitar tracks on there. Um, you know, I think it's a much better mix overall. But the, the other factor is the track listing, I think, works a lot better. The original starts off with Gambler, followed by Slide It In, Standing in the Shadow, Give Me More Time, Love Ain't No Stranger, Slow and Easy, Spit It Out, All or Nothing, Hungry for Love, and Guilty for Love. So for the U.S. release, they wanted to start off with the strongest single, and that was Slide It In. Um, I think that was a really wise choice. You know, it's it's the first thing you hear. So if you were sampling or anything like that, that like that's going to be the first thing you hear. And, it's, and it is a really good opener. If all, uh, I mean, they took Slow and Easy from the second side of the album, put that as the second track. Then they move Love Ain't No Stranger, which is, again, another really strong track, up to track three, All or Nothing, and then ending it with Gambler. I think Gambler's a cool track, but it works better as the closer for side one. So side two begins with Guilty for Love, then Hungry for Love, Give Me More Time, Spit It Out, and Standing in the Shadow. They took the track three and moved it all the way to the end. So what they really did here was they front-loaded the album, and it worked to great effect. You know, they not long after that would, would record the White Snake album, and they finally did, between these two albums, really did break the U.S., and it, and it achieved exactly what David Coverdale was trying to do. So he really thought about, like, how do I make this, this good album that has a lot of potential, how do I make it work for an American audience, and succeeded with Spades? I mean, I think Slide It In is one of their strongest albums. Slide It In is my favorite White Snake album. Um, and it was the first one I ever heard. Um, it, it, it confused me when they re-released this, um, and, and I'm talking about like an anniversary edition. It confused me when they said, okay, you know, they, they actually remastered it and they put out the UK version, and, but uh, I don't even know if it was the UK version. I think the anniversary edition, they put the songs in the order of the original release. Yes, they did. That was the 2019 remaster, I believe. Right. And which is weird because it's the U.S. mixes in the U.K. order. And I'm like, what the hell's this? And it was so weird because, you know, I put the CD in and I'm expecting. And I, I hear Gambler just kind of fade in. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and I was like, why is it taking so long to start? You know, so. It threw me off. But anyway, regardless of that, I I grew up listening to the Geffen Records American version, which slided in first. 
the drums on it sounds to me sounds so much better because they and, and I keep using the word punchier, but in this particular case, they they deaden the the bass drum, which when you when you're listening to like metal in general, a lot of the bass drum is always just like dead, but it 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 kind of like slaps, and that's what they did for this. the the the, the UK release had uh, drums that sounded like Eric Carr from Creatures of the Night, the bass drum. It's just real, very reverby, uh, not as bad as Eric. Well, Creatures of the Night is a completely different animal. It's a great sound. It was perfect for what they needed to do at the time. But this, um, I don't know if someone listened to that and said, oh, that would be great. And they made Cozy Powell. Or whoever, I guess it was it was Martin Birch who produced it. So when they when they when they mixed it or whatever, they gave it that bombastic bass drum sound. It didn't work because of the way it was mixed overall. You know, heavy keyboards, not so heavy on the guitars, kind of weird thing. Uh, the US the US version with that whole, I mean, I was just like the bass, the you know, Neil Murray. So bringing Neil Murray back into the band was huge. Because uh, he used to be in White Snake, and then he left, and Colin came in, and then uh, they brought him back. It was huge. He was such a prof- he knew the band, so that was his thing. And the bass parts are so much better. They they really really punch and and come through the thickness of his of his bass playing. Excellent, excellent work. The album to me is so so much better in the U.S. release than it is in the U.K. The track listing. I think the only thing about the track listing that I would disagree with was putting um, Standing in the Shadow at the end. Although it's a good way to end an album, I thought that that, that was a song that was worthy of a single, really. Um, there's, there's something, I, there's, I was listening to it today and it's a really good song. Spit It Out was probably the weakest of, uh, you know, and that Spit It Out and Hungry for Love, probably the weaker, uh, the, the weakest songs on the album. They could have been more towards the back end, which it was on side two, but, you know, and Spit It Out was the ninth song. I, I think they could have ended with Hungry for Love and everything else would have been really good. So. I mean, for the most part, I agree. I I think sometimes bands end their album with a really good track, and that, that's what they did. So I'm fine with, what, you know, the order that they put it in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of people that never get to the end of an album. <laughs> the funny thing about this album is that the, the UK version is still the European version that's out there. Um, and the US version is the, still the US version that's here in the States. Now, mind you, there's anniversary editions that have everything all together, which is kind of cool. You know, you get to listen to them side by side if you want. And, you know, they've been remastered. And that's the thing. So we haven't kind of mentioned it in, in, Maybe people out there kind of know, but anytime, and and especially with all the records we've talked about, anytime something is remixed, it is remastered. It has to be. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because what you're doing is you're taking your mix and you're dropping it down to, to two tracks, left and right. Those are the two tracks that go to the, the production facility, the manufacturers. But when you get to those two tracks, you there's there's an eq process that's put in place and that's the mastering to make it sound you know there's there's compression there's you know and and 
little tweaks here and there to the EQ that will give it its final sound. The, you know, the, the process, when you get the first one, you have to remix it, you know, or not, excuse me, when you get, when you take the first one and you remix it, you have to remaster it. So, and it's not the same process that they like do today where, you know, they take the old tracks, they take the, the, the final masters that, that are already set and then tweak that EQ, that remastering process is a little, is while it's the same process, it's different what they do to these quote unquote remasters that they do nowadays. So sorry for that side note there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think that the U S version is quite a bit better. I, I think some of the stuff that you hear on the UK version is really cool though. Like some of the solo work where they did uh dual guitars that's missing from the U S version. So there is merits to both or there are merits to both technically. Um, but, um, overall, I like the work that John Sykes did. I'm a big fan of his guitar work and I'm just pretty much always going to prefer the U S version because that's the version that I heard pretty much before I even ever knew a UK version existed. So, oh, I mean, if you listen to slide it in, they don't separate the guitars. Um, so there's only two guitars on it, right? But the the main riff is played literally on the left channel. Or so so let me let me change what I just said. They do separate the guitars. The main riff is played on the left side, and that's all you hear for the most part, I guess, until the chorus or whatever. So it's it's very uh it's flat kind of sounding. Whereas when you listen to the American version, the 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 guitar starts in the left, but then it it when it, when the whole band comes in, then you hear left and right. You hear this thickness. John Sykes's guitars on the right, you know, complement the guitars on the left, and it it brings the sound up big time. Yeah, so yeah. I, I I much more prefer the uh, the U.S. release or U.S. and Canadian release, American, American, <laughs> American. <laughs> don't get me started all right <laughs> white snake we've done white snake so we're now going to seether a band i i believe we have not mentioned before on this show is the band seether um alt rock alternative metal whatever you want to call it um i i really dig this band i've seen them in concert a really good show a uh, very, very moody kind of show. So we're going to talk about three different releases here, all centered around the same thing. When Seether first started uh, in South Africa, they were known as Sarin Gas, um, which is spelled a little bit different than the actual uh, chemical weapon. Uh, they spell it with an O as opposed to I. Um, and so... They, they released their first album in 2000 called Fragile. And it had 12 songs, I think it was, or 10 songs or something like that, of 12. And then they had uh, some other additional tracks. And I'm not going to go over the songs right away just yet. The band 
decided that they wanted to move to the United States. And there's a variety of things that go in between there. But two years later or a year later, they moved to the United States. They changed their name to Seether, get signed to a major label, or actually they get signed to Wind Up, which is technically still a, an independent label. But they had major label uh, distribution. And they so they changed the name to Seether. They take a lot of the songs that they already have and they re-record them and they released an album called Disclaimer in 2002, I think it was. Yes, in 2002. And that album contains six, one, two, three, contains six songs that were on Fragile. And they, they're re-recorded. They released the album. They've got 12 songs on the new release. Somewhere along the way, the record label, oh, because they 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 became okay. So this Seether got popular uh, with wrestling, movie soundtracks, and then um, Sean Morgan started dating Amy Lee from Evanescence. They recorded, uh, they re-recorded or did a new recording of the song "Broken," which was released on the original disclaimer, with her singing part of the the the, uh, the verses. It's, it's more electric compared to the first version, which was more acoustic. And the record label wants to release it. Band said, well, yeah, okay. But they wanted to, so the record label wanted to redo the first album. So they had to do, they had to come up with this big compromise. And so the compromise was they'll release the album. Uh, they'll release the album with the new version of Broken. But to to satisfy the band, the band added like six new songs, I think it was. And then uh, they also released a bonus disc that had videos and stuff and, and live stuff on it as well. And they remixed the album because they added a permanent guitar player, Pat Callahan. So they added some guitar melodies on top of it. Very subtle. Hard to distinguish the difference, but there is some differences, especially with reverb and and, and that on the mix, also the remastering process. And then they discontinued disclaimer one, if you want to call it that. So that's a really complicated story to get your first album out to the general public. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I mean, because because Fragile and Sarin Gas only technically exists in South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. So even though you know everyone knows from this either now, you know it's, it's Sarin Gas and that album's still available. Uh, obviously, it's on YouTube now. It's you know you can sell, buy it on Discogs and you can buy you know, used versions, but um, it's only available in South Africa technically. Um, disclaimer: Seether. Uh, here's a funny thing. So disclaimer two is the is they discontinued disclaimer. They cut they deleted the barcode and disclaimer two became the official release. However, because of the barcode, uh, there's a process, whatever that process is, disclaimer two is considered their second album, which is weird. And now they just did an anniversary edition of disclaimer. Of the first one. Of the first one. So it has the first mixes. <laughs> and it's an anniversary edition. So fucking weird. <laughs> Very strange. And it has a completely different cover. 
So Fragile has a cover. Disclaimer has a cover. And Disclaimer 2 has a cover. Now the Disclaimer 1 Anniversary Edition has a different cover. So there's four different covers. Mm. It is insane. Now, I know you're not a big Seether fan. Um, I I personally think... I mean, that- I'm just indifferent because I never really listened to them. It's hard for me to say, like... Uh, I mean, they're not my style. So it's hard for me to... to- to say either way you know i i I don't really care for that typical um style of that time um but i haven't listened to them enough to to give a solid yay or nay right and and i understand that i get that everyone has their preferences uh you know when i first picked up disclaimer i got as a promo when i got to my to to, when i re how would i put it when I started working at the record store again, the second time um, I got as a promo, it was pretty cool. That first riff for gasoline is so heavy. I'm like, this is super cool. Now the version that I got ended up being an edited version. So they didn't curse. They didn't have any foul language on it. They literally deleted it or kind of somehow figured out a way to get rid of it. And it wasn't cause it wasn't like a mix. They, they, they edited some stuff on top of it. Gasoline is such a cool song. And then Needles. I love Needles. The drums at the beginning of it. Uh, oh, I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, you're like, I love Needles. <laughs> the uh, song. I love the song does. Needles from Steeler. <laughs> um, you know, I don't like drinking gasoline, although some people think alcohol's, uh, you know, whiskey and all that shit's pretty much gasoline. But um, it, it's funny because uh, gasoline there's a there's a connotation to the whole uh the, the lyrics to the to the song it's a it's an interesting thing about uh him and the the person that he's uh, i wouldn't say dating or seeing or whatever and the person's very plastic and very self-centered um but he wants to blow the house down with gasoline it's really cool fucking song um i love the first four songs on this album um broken's a pretty cool song i like both versions um because the the acoustic one is a little more somber and since it's just him it almost feels a little more emotional whereas i, mean, the I one- prefer the pantera version but- <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the amy lee version is pretty cool because it, it is a duet with the two of them so and a little more electric guitar on there so that's pretty neat Given it, you know, you should. I, I know you're not a big Seether fan, but you should give that gasoline song a pretty good listen. Okay. I'll and I was reading this. comments. So here's the funny thing: I was reading comments on uh, on the Sarin Gas version of Gasoline. I listened to it uh, on YouTube the other day, and so different. Um, I mean, different in the fact that it's re- it's a different recording, very demo sounding, very heavy sounding, um, but still. Uh, still is as dynamic, I guess you could say, as as the one that became popular. But it's so like the people preferring the sarin gas version over the Seether version is so weird to me because the Seether version is just so it's so thick and heavy. And then people like listen to this YouTube shit, and I'm like, eh, that doesn't sound the same. I mean, I well, love- I mean. Keep in mind, they probably, if they're preferring that one, right, that may be the first version they heard. Like, they may be. be from South Africa, and they may be like, this is 
this is my version, you know. <laughs> they may be like, see, they're sold out. I mean, Sarin Gas sold out after they changed the name, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it depends. So, all right, we got uh, you got one man left to talk about. What do you got? All right, so as you mentioned before, we haven't really mentioned Icers the whole lot. Um, there's certain drama behind the band that we're not going to discuss, um, but. Uh, this was a band that I followed for a long time, and I liked various incarnations. And I say various incarnations because they've had about 587. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was hard to be a consistent Ice Dirt fan because the band was not consistent. Um, you have, oh, gosh, what, um, five or six different lead singers? So they, they've released 12 albums, and I'm saying 12 albums because the last one really doesn't count. Um, but they, they started off with the singer Gene Adam. Then their second album had John Greeley. Then they settled in and they had Matthew Barlow for one, two... I mean, it looks like six studio albums and a, and a live recording. Yeah. Six albums, right? Um, and then, like you said, a live recording. Um, but then they had Tim Ripper Owens for um, two albums. And I guess a live see, recording and a live recording. Um, and then an EP and then Matthew Barlow came back for one album. And then they had Stu block until the band dissolved. So, you know, you have so many different singers, so many different musicians in the band. And th there's been several that we've talked about that are like that. I mean, we just recently talked about black Sabbath in depth and how many different singers they had in eras of the band. So sometimes it's hard to follow along, and I can totally understand that. That being said, there's some really good stuff in their catalog that is worth checking out. Now, I had kind of become a lapsed fan around the time that, um, I want to say, like, Horror Show came out. So I, I really like Something Wicked This Way Comes. And then uh, they just kind of dropped off the map for me. Um, Matthew Barlow is never one of my favorite singers, so I'm just going to put that right out there. But I know he has a, a pretty rabid fan base in the Iced Earth community. And I do like it, but he's not, again, he's just not one of my favorites. He's very operatic sounding um, and almost kind of like silly to some degree. Um, that being said that we're going to talk about the something that wicked this way comes the, the something wicked trilogy, which is prophecy birth of the wicked and the coming curse. Um, those would later be re-recorded by Tim Ripper Owens for the overture of the wicked, which was an EP that preceded the first part of the something wicked, um, duology, I guess. So basically, um, uh, John Schaefer, had this concept that he came up with way back when he did something wicked this way comes telling a story um that he wanted to expand upon over two albums and um you know tell a more fleshed out story through his lyrics and so he took the 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 idea that was the prophecy birth of the wicked and the coming curse and and blew that up and thought what a good way to kind of start off the new era of, of Iced Earth with Tim Ripper Owens on vocals, releasing the, the new big single, which was 
10,000 strong, along with that trilogy we recorded. Um, so you have the original version, which is very good. And then this new version that came out, which I think the, 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 uh, instrumentation is much heavier. I really liked him, Rip Rowan's vocals on this, and I thought he fit the the band really well. Now, obviously, that's going to be divided when you have a fan base that really likes one singer. However, Matthew Barlow wasn't in music at the time. You know, they're they're I think they're related through uh, marriage. So I want to say Matthew Barlow is is related to. John Schaefer through marriage to his sister, if I remember correctly. It's it's one or the other. So um, he had decided to become a police officer and really left music for a little while. Um, so they bring in Rip Rowans, who has, you know, his history with Judas Priest. He's a name. It's kind of this chance for Iced Earth to, to reach that next level, which they had never done before. And there's some... You know, there was some hype behind it. The, I picked up Overture of the Wicked, and I, I absolutely loved that EP. I thought it was amazing. 10,000 Strong is a super good song. And then the re-recordings really got me hyped up for something Wicked Part 1. And I remember when that album came out, it, wasn't, it didn't quite live up to my expectations. In some ways, it's like any concept album where there's like some good stuff, some kind of weak stuff, a lot of uh, fluff kind of filling out a story that they're trying to tell. And so I, but I was still very hyped up behind it. And I think a lot of people were too, that I, at least that I knew that were in forums at the time. I mean, this was back in 2007. Um, so I saw a lot of positivity and a lot of negativity as far as, you know, people just want what they want. The uh, fandoms are going to, you know, and they have every right to be because they're the people that support a a a, a property, a band, etc. They they can have their opinions, but I saw more and more people kind of getting hyped up about the the Ripper Owens aspect of the band, and then all of a sudden he was out of the band, and, and nobody knew really why. And years later, we're we're you know get interviews and them talking about it. I think last year, the both parties kind of opened up about it. Basically, John Schaefer said, I got to teach you how to become a front man. You're not a front man. And Wendy Dio, who is Owen's um, uh, manager, said, uh, you need to get out of this band. And so it kind of fell apart from there. And then you find out that part two of the story is sung by Matthew Barlow, he's coming back into the band. There was a lot of hype behind that, too. And so they re-recorded some of the stuff that appeared on Framing Armageddon, Seashin Massacre, The Clouding, and A Charge to Keep. Those were the big singles off of that album. And they said, we're going to have Matthew Barlow record these, along with some of the new stuff that was going to be on the next album. So same kind of idea. You know, they had... Ripper Owens record old Barlow stuff, and then now they're having Barlow record Ripper stuff. Um, so that leads into the second part of the album. Not long after, Matthew Bar Barlow leaves music again, leaves the band. And so you had this huge opportunity that they could have done something with, 
and that the band had finally kind of built up this hype behind and built up interest and then it just kind of fizzled out so there was all this effort put into it obviously multiple times with them saying like this is the new version of the band we're going to re-record this music and this is this is we're going full throttle and just the 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 inability to work with certain people the inability to mesh it just deflated everything and from that point they never kind of got back on track they released dystopia a few few years later with Stu Block on vocals that was another opportunity that kind of got some hype behind it got kind of got people going okay but i think you know after so many rapid changes and so many times saying this is it we're finally doing this basically people just lost interest and it's really unfortunate i've never been a fan of iced earth and and it's not because i don't like them it's not because i i disapprove of their music or whatever it is um i never got into them um and i've always read about them i always thought they had really cool album covers um but over the years i've learned about john schaefer and um I've learned that he's one of those kinds of guys that can be difficult to work with. He can have a big ego. Uh, and so obviously from what you've been describing, um, that's pretty much been their biggest, uh, stumbling block to becoming bigger than they are or than they were. However you want to look at where they're at right now. I mean, yeah, um, there's similarities to Ingve in that capacity where Ingve is a virtuoso guitar player, but never plays with musicians for very long, you know, it, to the point that some of his best albums are with singers that no longer ever want to work with him. So, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it's sad, but at the same time, like, I think it takes, there are specific fans that it doesn't matter as long as the guitar work is amazing. They're going to listen. And that's fair. Like I get, I get that. But it's it's always going to be something that holds back certain bands. I start the namely being who we're talking about. Um, but that's always going to prevent them from reaching that next level. And these two albums were kind of that that moment where you go like, oh, there's this push. They're they're possibly going to reach a, a next level as a fan, you know. But they just, you know, he squandered it basically. Hey, you know, and it is funny because when you think about what they've, you know, what, what they were trying to accomplish, I mean, this, their, their, um, their makeup as a, as a band, as a unit, as, as a, uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm trying to say? It's not even a, as a band, as a unit, as, as a musical, uh, endeavor, put it that okay. way, right? John's idea with all the concept albums and uh all the storytelling that goes on that's a difficult thing to basically continue on on an every album basis and gain new fans or to gain or even hold the fans you have that's my idea like a band that constantly does uh concept albums I mean, unless it's one of those things that cross over to to the to the masses, you're really kind of pigeonholing yourself into one lane. Yeah, 
I mean, we've talked about that with like Slayer before. Where I mean, obviously, they don't they don't do concept albums all the time, but they they are fine in their lane. They don't want to hit the mainstream. They don't, they just want to do what they want to do, and I I can respect that. And so there's some bands that are always going to be that way, um, and sometimes they do find you know massive amounts of fame. Like you know, outside of the genre of metal, you have some some musicians that are like that. Like one that comes to mind is Bjork. Remember Bjork? Yeah big like she's only going to have like so much appeal you know the 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 average joe listening to the radio that likes the 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 classic pop music is going to listen to that and go what is this (laughs) there there is a a market for that that uh you know specific thing and iced earth i think just constantly kind of like stepped on their own toes and never even really allowed themselves to to like even find that firm footing that it, someone like her would have found, you know? So it, it sucks because there is a lot of really good music there. And I know some people are going to go, well, I don't want to listen to him because, you know, I don't agree with the man's politics, but like, <sighs> yeah, but the politics didn't come into play until a couple of years ago. So even then, like, I just, I just think sometimes you have to separate the art from the artist and just appreciate what it is. Cause it's not just one person either. There's lots of musicians that were involved in stuff. So, uh, you know, so the, the bit that my biggest takeaway from, so, you know, you gave me uh, a list of things to listen to um, mm-hmm. specifically that we were talking about for this particular episode. And um, I, you know, I went and I listened to them and, and I, I, I found it fascinating because there's really good musicianship on it, you know, and, and I, I enjoyed what I heard. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing that, that came out was the Something Wicked This Way Comes, 1998, Matthew Barlow on vocals. Um, and, you know, so you know, I'm listening to The Prophecy. I'm listening to Birth of the Wicked and The Coming Curse. So the first takeaway for me was as soon as I can, as, as I heard Matthew Barlow singing, you had that, as you mentioned earlier, you had that operatic style that he has. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Jeff Tate has that. Bruce Dickinson has that. But there's a there's a difference between doing it in a band like a Jeff Tate and a Bruce Dickinson, and then doing it because you're on stage and your voice is doesn't have a microphone on it, right? Mm-hmm. So when you don't have a microphone, on it, you have to do certain things. You have to express and intonate larger than life to get that room acoustically filled and he matthew barlow uh, i'm referring to does that bellow in his in his uh uh not stomach but in his diaphragm his you know his chest area and it 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 sounds like he's trying to be in an opera you know whereas Jeff Tate would do it or Bruce Dickinson would do it. Yes, they would they would accentuate certain things, but they wouldn't sound a certain way. And they also, I mean, Bruce has a higher pitch. Jeff probably along similar lines as, as Matthew, but it, it's, you know, as far as much as I knock Jeff Tate nowadays, you know, he is an excellent singer. I mean, yeah, he's, he's still an excellent singer right he just, so. he just doesn't have quite the range he used to exactly it, i think the biggest thing that hurts jeff tate is his ego like it, it's <laughs> Ooh, hard what, to... what egos no <laughs> yeah 
but it, but it's not that thing again. <laughs> it, but it seriously is. It, it you know it it's harder to take somebody seriously and be forgiving of their faults when they have such an ego. So oh, I, I and I think it applies to to lots of different musicians, not just Jeff Tate. But oh no, of course. So I, I went ahead now. You know, we obviously in, in this the capacity of what we're listening to here, we jump nine years to Overture of the Wicked, and John decides he wants to reestablish that that storyline, that trilogy. So he brings Ripper in, and they re-record. This is a complete re-recording of those songs from nine years earlier, and he really went out of his way to um to change things up a bit now prophecy pretty pretty much a very similar kind of song um uh, birth of the wicked you know it, there's some there's some changes in in the way it's that the, heavier you know yes it, it's it's heavy but you see it's a little cleaner too but what i noticed about the heaviness is that it's all about the drum um, the, the, the way the, not the drum, not the way to record it. It's all about the drum line and the drum pattern that the guy is playing. Uh, because in the 1998 version, the Matthew Barlow version, much simpler drum patterns. There's not a lot of double bass. It's in there, but it's, it's not constant through the whole song. And, and like, um, much of today's recordings, the older one, does not have it's not overpowering but the the newer version is just constant double bass through the whole song mm -hmm. so it, it's and there's nothing wrong with that because the song commands it however what i noticed is that and i don't know if this is something that happened with john and because i i'm pretty sure he's a very confident guitar player but he changed from having I almost want to say on Birth of the Wicked and Prophecy, he had a very Metallica style of chugging with that that real quick, you know, type of thing that that James Hetfield is very known for, or thrash music in general is very known for. And instead of doing it on the re-recordings, he allowed the drums to compensate for that. And so he was doing different things on the guitar. And I thought that was a very unique way of approaching the same rhythm pattern, but using yes. a different instrument. I do really actually like the differences, um, even though I sometimes prefer the newer version with Ripper on vocals because I like his vocals better. Um, there is something interesting about both versions of the 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 recordings and the rhythm patterns. So yeah, that is a, that is a really nice subtle touch. That is something different. Now I would love to hear what Ripper Ripper's vocals would be like on the original versions, because <clears throat> since there is such less uh, dynamics with the drums uh, and, and it's the thing is you can hear the guitar so much clearer because the, the, the drumming is not double bass or constantly just pounding that it, mm -hmm. it, it the the guitars come across a lot better, a lot fresher, a lot brighter. So I mean, again, it all depends on your style. I mean, both of them, are, you know, the the new ones are recorded very well, but it, it that that constant pounding of the double bass drums kind of supersedes John's playing. Now, however, on the coming curse, that's a completely reimagined version from the original. 
because yeah. there's, there's no piano. Uh, you know, there's there's the 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 the, the soft and, and the slow and soft parts are pretty much virtually gone on on uh, uh, Ripper's version, and nothing's wrong with that. It's a good version that he does, so I like his. So, but it's it's complete. I mean, it it goes straight into the song. It doesn't even have that whole piano intro, you know that 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 lasts for a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. So, it, so that's pretty. I mean, it, it it's a different song, and but Ripper pulls it off. Now, it's different, could, but it still feels the same. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel like a completely different song. But yes, instrumentation is very different. Right now, you know. Just a short while later, you know, or through the same recording sessions, they come out with something wicked part one or framing Armageddon, something wicked part one. And so the the a new trilogy was Session Massacre, The Clouding, and, and A Charge to Keep. So I'm listening to it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to it. And then let me listen to the other version. And I'm like, wow, that sounds familiar. So then I go to the second song. I go to The Clouding. And I go, hmm, let me listen to this. All right, cool. Let me go listen to the to the Matthew Barlow version. Wow, this sounds awfully familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a second. Did they just change the vocals? Yes, they just changed the vocals. So there's no re-recording. It's a remix, and so it's the same tracks remixed, and not a lot of differences in the remix. It's just some subtleties, um, but the vocals, whole new vocal line. I'm like, okay. So that one is one of those things where it's like a really good comparison because you're doing nothing but comparing vocal line to vocal line. Yes. Still it, like Ripper's better. <laughs> I, I agree. I, it big, uh, Partially because it's, it's the original version and it's how it was intended to be done. And then you have Barlow coming in afterward. And, you know, anytime you're doing a cover, you're doing a cover. You know, it's it's not going to be those those natural thoughts and emotions and feelings and stuff like that. You're, you are um, copying somebody else's work and there's been many out there that are able to do it. Well, I think Barlow, you know, having his relationship with iced earth and everything. And, and, you know, it's, it's not hard stepping into the, the same shoes you once were in sometimes. So for that aspect, I think he did it well. I just still prefer Ripper's version. Oh yeah, I mean the 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 interesting thing about it was, like, um, it, it's you. Those are those are the types of things. Let me not, let me start that thought again. You're right in that a, a vocalist he doesn't have the same uh, feeling towards the song. Interestingly enough, with Matthew because he's he is close to John. Um, it probably was easier for him to step into those types of shoes exactly, and, and yeah. be a fill. Now there is the, the, the big thing is since he's not part of the original recording process, right? There, the, the conceptualizing and the, 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 the conversations that you have back and forth are, are different. They're not the same. You're not involved in the creative process. You're just in, now you're just involved in, it's already been created for you. I just need you to redo this, you know? And so, Sometimes it comes across differently, but Matthew did a great job. He's just not the same singer as Ripper. Yeah. And so it, it just, there's a completely big difference there. I, I mean, like I said, I, for one, prefer the Ripper versions, like you mentioned. Um, and I, I just found it curious that they went ahead and did that. Uh, rather than just release the one, the, the new song, I walk alone, 
no, I'm going to go ahead and do the whole trilogy again. You know, well, and it, it was it was specifically, uh, and it may not have been an fu per se, but it was an fu to Ripper in that it was like you know we put all this effort, we said this is the you know the new uh, Ice Earth, and then things didn't work out. You left, so we're going to re-record it, and and it's this is better. This is the the next best version of of Ice Earth, but they didn't put the effort behind it either. And so it's just there. I think a lot of people missed the, the, the single even coming out. So, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you can sit there and say, oh, yeah, here, F you, Ripper. You know, I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do, I'm going to bring my old guy back in. Ha ha. You know, but who, who, who's the person who needs to look themselves in the mirror the most? And it's John. You know, and he has to realize, oh, yeah, we had all these plans and this dude walks away from me. But why did he walk away? He didn't walk away just because he felt like being a dick. You know, it, that's one of those things. Like, if you give oh, the guy an opportunity. told him, get the hell out. Well, but <laughs> why? Because she recognized, you know, going through very similar situations in the past with Ronnie, mm -hmm. she, she realized that it wasn't going to work. Oh, for you know? sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't blame her for telling him to get the hell out of it. I don't blame him for leaving, you know, but it, 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 the only way that you can blame him for leaving is if, if he had a really long tenured relationship with John that never nece necessarily came to fruition until they recorded together. Like if they had, if they were buds from like when they were 10 years old, right. And they finally got a chance to be together, you know, it's a different story you know, cause they had these plans, but this was a relationship that became available to each of them. They took the opportunity to join up together and, you know, Ripper's like, uh, yeah, I might not want to be here for too much longer. You know, <laughs> and he bailed out. That's it. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, so I don't blame him, you know, this, and, and you know what, sometimes it's even more than just the music. Sometimes you get to know someone personally and something happens while you're on stage. Something happens while you're going to the pizza place and you all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I might need to, uh, I'll, I'll fill my commitments here, but I'm gone after this, you know? I'm just picturing Iced Earth just walking down the street. Hey, let's go to a pizza place. You know, you know, you, you see it all the time. They, they I know it's just, it's just funny in your mind, like to think, like you know, like you just see the Rolling Stones just drop into McDonald's together. No, it it's not going to happen, but you know, I can see Iced Earth doing it because they didn't have the money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see Mick Jagger going to McDonald's. <laughs> I see Mick Jagger buying a McDonald's, but. <laughs> Possibly, you never know. So, uh, so yeah, that's so. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm liking the the Ripper versions better. So, uh, you having not really been a fan of Ice Earth before, like, what do you think of some of the music you listen to? I mean, the music's cool. I mean, I, I, he's John's got a great guitar tone. Um, obviously, musicianship wise, he's always trying to play with the best, and he has some really talented musicians behind him. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't take anything away from the, the musicianship. Does some good covers. I mean, I, ha I have and I bought the covers album that he released. Um, but other than that, I mean, I ne I've never purchased anything else from them. Um, I, just, I just thought, you know, like, well, it, it, did it change anything? Like, are you uh, did you enjoy what you listened to? Or, you know. 
I did. I, I did enjoy it. Now, so for me, right now, I guess in my the, the point in my life, it's it's really difficult for me to to like. I, I have to slowly build into like I've been wanting to get more and more into power metal, mm-hmm. but I haven't. Like I've heard songs here and there from Hammerfall. I've heard songs here and there from Ice Earth. Um, I've never just gone out of my way and say, hey let me check this whole thing out here and, and go from there. That's I've, fair tri- I've tried to, you know, like same thing happened with, um, uh, what's the band? They just got a, a Volbeat. They just changed the guitar players. You know, Rob Caggiano just left, you know, and I dude Volbeat, you know, metal Elvis better than Danzig that way. You know, it's super cool. Right. But I've just never got past a certain album and, and I'm like, uh, you know, they're cool. I just, I, I don't keep listening. That's my fault. <laughs> it's it, it can be difficult to get into to older bands or just new music in general. But I do find myself, especially when we're we've since we've been doing this podcast, um, I do find myself finding new music and and going through like little periods of listening to some of these bands where I'm like, this is you know this is really cool. Maybe I didn't like it when I was younger, but. You know, something about it sticks with me now. I mean, think about it. I, I wasn't into melodic death metal when I started the podcast. Mm-hmm. You you introduced me to that, and I and I had always been itching to to listen to Amana Marth specifically because they kept talking about it on that metal show. Yeah, um, you know, Jim Florentine and Don Jameson, not so much Eddie Trunk, but you know, <laughs> I said, yeah, he doesn't like anything. <laughs> he doesn't like anything that growls. You know, so. He, uh, you know, so I, I went out of my way to finally listen to it and, and it doesn't hurt either that they decided to kind of on their newer albums, kind of go a little bit more, uh, shall I say they're more mainstream than they were before. And it also didn't hurt that on that Berserker album, the first song of Fafner's gold is basically in my eyes, a tribute to master, um, a tribute to Metallica's battery. Um, so that doesn't hurt, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, but I, I've, I've picked up a bunch of children of Bodom albums since you, since you and I have, you know, been hanging out and, and, and doing the show, uh, picked up, um, what else? Uh, I actually, I bought some more Volbeat. I finally bought the Volbeat albums. Um, but you know things like that. I, I've I've expanded that in flames. Uh, what's the other one? The haunted. I I can listen to that now and and kind of understand it more. Appreciate you know. it a little bit more. Yeah. Right. So I it. for so I that's why I say I want you know you and I have been talking on, on off off the air about getting into power metal, doing some more shows you know with the Brazilians, um, doing some shows about uh, just in general in power metal. Um, but we, I have gone out of my way to listen to it. I'll have to give you a list of power metal stuff to listen to. Okay. So we're going to get to the last one we're going to talk about tonight. And that is going to be Motley Crue and Too Fast for Love. So this record, this is, I, I think out of all the ones we talked about tonight, other than maybe... Well, that's not true because Godsmack was pretty successful. This is probably one of the most, uh, one of those weird, those success stories of having an album that's completely you know self done, and then 
turns into this big thing, but that's not true because Godsmack, uh, Creed, you know, they, they, those were both very, very successful first albums that were self-released. But, um, the thing about this one is, I guess where the fact that Molly Crew is still around today is what makes this one kind of special. Um, released on November 10th, 1981, it was released on leather Records, So it was the band's own record label. Um, they had released a seven inch single called, um, Toast to the Town that they were given out at concerts and shows on the Sunset Strip. And then they finally decided to release to, to record an album. This was the album that they recorded. Everyone kind of knows the record. We all know um, Motley Crue. I mean, if, if we need to go over it again, we can. You know, Live Wire being the first song. Um, the, the, the funny thing about it is if you go to the Leather Records version, of this it's got a different second song but what everyone knows out there is we know live wire come on and dance public enemy number one merry-go-round take me to the top piece of your action starry eyes too fast for love and on with the show well the leather records version is a little different um starts with live wire then it goes to public enemy number one i i i actually kind of don't mind that I, maybe they should have kept it that way. I prefer it actually. You know, right. It's not, you know, it's, I mean, both of them are okay. Both ways of doing it. I mean, they kept public enemy number one, uh, next after come on and dance. So it's kind of interesting because they threw come on and dance to the, to the, I mean, they brought it up the, the record company, um, Electra Motley Crue actually had it on as the eighth song or the third song on side two. Um, Take me to the top. I like where that where Electra put it at the to end the first side. I thought that was pretty good. Um, but they remove "Stick to Your Guns." Now there's a, there's a little bit of a controversy with that song because essentially, according to uh, what I've read, Nikki Six wrote that song and then sold it to Kim Fowley. So it was considered a Kim Fowley song, even though Nikki Six is the songwriter. But he gave up all the like I think he gave up half the publishing. So I don't know what the deal is, but they dropped it off of the of the Electra Records version. I guess that was Electra's way of not wanting to pay any extra publishing or, or give away money. Who knows? <clears throat> um so they left that off. So it it went from being a 10-song album to a nine-song album. Now, remix-wise, this album, in my opinion sounds so much better on the electro records version it's the bass is out there it's a, it's a, it sounds like a professional recording in comparison to um uh, a demo or or a lo-fi recording if you want to look at it that way the guitars are very very have a very unique sound to them on this record and they kept that unique sound on the remix but they they made it sound a little thicker. Again, thicker always sounds better for some reason. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean it is it's fuller. It has less of a tinny sound to it. Um, you know, there's oh, go ahead. I was going to say the the bass guitars are so prominent on it. Mm -hmm. it. It makes a big difference. It really does. 
everything about it sounds cleaner, more professional, and it still sounds raw on the on the electric version. Like it, they didn't mess it up by in any means. They didn't make it too commercial. It still sounds raw while still having a better overall quality. I mean, so when you break it down to it, the snare drum has a little bit more of an attack to it. The guitar sound sounds thicker. The bass is, is more prevalent. Um, even the vocals are a little bit more upfront in some cases, drawn back in others. But in, in really, it, it's weird. So there's a lot of different effects that they put on in the original Leather Records version on, on Vince's vocals that were removed on, on the um, electric version. Although in some other cases, they added some reverb to Vince's vocals because it, I guess that portion of the song kind of commanded it, demanded it, whatever you want to call it. And it, it was necessary. Whereas, you know, having echoes just to have echoes or to have heavy reverb, just to have a heavy reverb doesn't work. And, and, uh, Michael Wagner, who, who remixed the album is, you know, is one of those people who kind of knows his stuff, you know, even though Roy Thomas Baker kind of oversaw the whole, uh, reaper, you know, remixing of the album, Michael Wagner was the guy twiddling the knobs. Um, the biggest difference, there's two really huge differences there. Uh, Too Fast for Love, the title track, there is an intro version, 33-second long intro that is completely left off. Uh, they took it out. I don't see any reason why they took it out. I mean, it's not like the, the album was on a time crunch or anything like that, especially since they had cut a whole song off of it. So I didn't see any reason why to knock it out, but they did. Uh, and then the next big thing was on Come On and Dance, well, actually, no, on Merry Go Round, they had the original leather records version has an acoustic intro. Whereas the electro records version, they re they, I don't know if it was re-recorded or not necessarily recorded, but an added recorded part. It may have been something that was already part of the, the, the tapes and they just discarded the acoustic version and they kept the electric version, but there's electric guitar in uh merry go round. That's not on the leather records version. There's also <clears throat> on, on the actual, on, on live wire. There is this clapping that's in the end of the song. So like yes. every time they do the and it stops. Right. And there's clapping and whistling and, and I'm so glad that's gone on the uh, electric version. <laughs> you know what's funny is I uh back in the day they released Helter Skelter as a single as a picture disc single. Yeah. And the B side was um Live Wire. And I believe it was piece of your action. The, so the live wire was the original leather records version. So it had that clapping and mm -hmm. all that noise. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is, it was so interesting to hear the two different versions. Do I prefer one over the other? I'd prefer the Electra mix. If Electra had kept some of that clapping or some of the, cause there's some other sounds there too, that I think would have would have kind of made it just as interesting that the, the like a, a cross between the two but they electric removed everything completely and that's what we're used to so i just like the silence because it makes it that much more like kind of dramatic 
Yeah. Right. I, you're, you're I don't care as much for the the clapping and the, the, it's just filling the space when it's not necessary. Sometimes it's just nice to have that that uh, that moment of of silence where like there's space in between. There's room to breathe. No, I agree completely. I, I agree completely with that. And I thought that that's why I think I thought the leather records version had one spot of that that was silent, but I can't remember. Anyhow, on Come On and Dance, so here's a, the, the difference there. So on Vince's vocals, after, every time he comes into the Come On and Dance chorus, he does this high pitch, and I can call it squealing, but he's, he's singing something at high pitch. You know, he, he's vocalizing really loud <laughs> in his high pitch. And they on the lecture, they removed that until the last chorus, which I think gives it a better effect. Like you, you have the song kind of build. And then when you get to that last, come on and dance chorus, then you hear him, you know, doing his little squealing in the background that works better to me than doing it every single time. Mm, yeah. So I, I thought that I thought that was a smart thing for them to do. Not that that was a, a great song or going to be a single or whatever, but it worked better for the flow of the song. And then the song kind of ends on the electric version kind of ends on come on and dance. Boom. It just ends right where they, on the, the leather version is like, come on and dance, come on and dance. Right. And then, you know, bang, bang and they start, you know, jamming and drums and guitar chords and all that stuff. And, you know, then it ends. Uh, I thought that was, it's like almost like they're in concert and they end the song there. I, th- I, I thought that was, smart for Electra to cut it off at that point before it got there. It's it's just more well crafted. Like the 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 cuts and changes that they made. Again, it's another situation where it just made it that much more mature, but not so much that it didn't sound raw. It didn't sound hungry. Like it's it's just a better mix. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean I uh, when I listen to the two mixes now and as soon as I put on the, the, the electro version, you could just tell, I mean, it's so thick. The bass is there. It's, it's so, it's just so much more pleasant to listen to. Yeah, quite really honestly, is. It's very thin sounding on the leather records version. I did, however, buy the leather record re-release that Molly crew put out. Oh God, maybe 20 years ago, something mm. like that. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago, but uh, I want to say, no, it was 18 years ago. I think it was like 2005 or something like that. Um, they released it and, uh, or they re-released it, put it that way. Um, because now, you know, Motley Crue can do whatever the hell they want because they own all their recordings. Um, one of the few bands in the world that own all their masters and they continuously re-release like the, the new, the new releases that they put out recently, reissues of their albums. Talk about not putting any effort into it. They literally put a cover CD, boom, goodbye. <laughs> that was it. Like, no. Well, it I, goes along with their performance. Then, <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> let's not get into that part. Um, I, 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 one thing I got to say, with all these records that we've just talked about tonight, I, I personally believe that every single one of them that was remixed, remastered, and re-released deserved it. Um, I think. The one record out of all the ones that we've talked about, if they would not have touched it, um, which it may not have been as successful as it was, 
but it was probably just as good was the Godsmack one. Um, or maybe even the Creed. I think the, the Creed would, I think both of them would have been successful. I think TNT would have been just as successful. Well, T- that's a different story because they didn't remix it or anything like that. They, that was just kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but but uh, a, still, regardless, I think it would have been just as successful in its original form. Oh yeah, I, I think I, so too. I think I so too. Um, I don't. I don't see. I didn't see a big reason to to do what they did. Um, maybe dropping school days and and bringing in uh, what, what song did they bring in for that one? Um, I mean, Little Lover and she's Little not- Lover. Yeah, you know, though those would have that would have been fine. You know, dropping school days, it's okay. Um, but I don't see you know like what I'm talking about like with with the remix ones. You know, because these bands it was their first bands and they were independently released. Yeah, Creed. I think Creed's is the closest to from one to the other with subtle differences. Godsmack had to do all those uh, changes with the edits because of the, of the samples stuff like that um so sonically i think creeds is the closest both of those two albums were successful debut albums um obviously motley Crue had a success but it, it wasn't until shout the devil where they really took off so but by and large many people still consider too fast for love to be their best record i don't but that's me <laughs> <laughs> all right so that brings us to our big four for tonight and we're gonna do one that's a little different <laughs> Big four Creed songs. <laughs> I want to hear your four songs first. You want to hear mine first? Yes. All right. Um, as you may know, I am not a Creed fan. So um, <laughs> picking four songs is, uh, is a tough one. Um, but I'm going to go with the ones that uh, that I remember the most. Uh, and... The, f- the first one, or f- number four, is uh, What If. I remember that being pretty decent song um, as far as, like, it's a little heavier than probably some of their other stuff. A um, little more tolerable. And it was a pretty big single, I think, for the time. Um, my number three is Massacrifice. <laughs> um... <laughs> um uh, and it's more it, it's it's somewhat ironic reasons just you know it's one of those that like i just remember listening to constantly because you know friends and my sister were just obsessed with creed at the time again like i just don't understand how people became so hateful towards creed like if you liked them and there's so many people now that say like they never liked them bullshit like there's so many people that were creed marks. Like, I don't get why the, there's all the hate for them now, but you know, because it's 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 the end thing to do. Um, so my number two is with arms wide open. Yeah, open. <laughs> um, with arms, <laughs> with arms wide open. Um, so uh, you know, the the guitar work again, like uh from mark tremani was always good so there like there's that aspect of it again i became a big alter bridge fan so there is there that that bridge between the two uh my biggest gripe with uh creed was always scott stapp and you know i got a better version of creed with uh alter bridge although you um, left off their big you know their big creedish kind of single 
<laughs> from the yeah, they had much better stuff. Um, <laughs> and then um, my number one is higher. Um, it's so funny to me that I maybe it's because there was that religious connotation that people uh, started to dislike Creed. But I mean, how can you take a song like "Can You Take Me Higher" and not think it's something about that? Like if you if you were so blind from the beginning that you didn't make that connection, then I don't really understand. Um, but you know, I think that's probably their best song. Like, period. Like, I I really can't think of another song that I would think is better from Creed. Wow! So very surprising. I, it, I tell it from, for me, <laughs> I, I didn't expect you to pick all the pop songs, but for the most part, <laughs> you were right on there. Um, I mean, what if is the heaviest song that you picked, um, higher. So, so f- here's the funny thing the the whole religious aspect to them really started because my own prison and, and the, the connotations that they have there with Gabriel at the end and stuff like that of the song. Um, but higher really isn't uh, isn't uh, a song uh, that has any connotation whatsoever. Yet people no, associate no. it that way, right? No, but you could easily associate it with that. And right. and I think some people were were like, no, there's no way there's that association. Like, yeah, of course there is. And like, it doesn't matter what what the band necessarily intended. The fact is all of us can can glean something different from music, right? If you hear a song uh, and and it hits you one way, then that's your interpretation of it. And that's how right. it should be. You shouldn't have to go look up the textbook def- definition of what the band intended. A mu- music is, it, it hits you in a certain way and you appreciate it in a certain way. And if it means something to you, it may not mean the same thing to somebody else because everybody has different life experiences. That's why I like that ambiguousness that of what music is about. I, and I totally agree with you um, because it's music is however it hits you. And that's, that's the most important thing about it. Okay. So we have zero crossover, which <laughs> is pretty interesting, but again, I'm a little bit more knowledgeable about Creed than you are. I'll, I'll um, admit I didn't go into depth and listen to every Creed song. I didn't want to torture myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's funny about that. Like, I don't think if, if um if you had listened to a lot of the songs um that were not necessarily the popular ones you may have found something that you might have liked a little bit more um but I, again i listened to like i listened for riffs and i didn't really find anything that just like snapped out at me and i think you know just from the perspective like there's a reason why higher was one of their most populous populous popular singles um, there's a reason why with arms right wide, I can't even say it. There's a reason why with arms wide open is one of their biggest singles. Like they're, they're popular for a reason too. Oh no, absolutely. I totally get it. All right. So my big four, um, so they were apart for, um, a bit, the band had broken up and basically eight years later, got back together or seven years later, got back together, re-record or re- Damn it. I can't even say the right things. They were apart for about eight years. They got back together, recorded a new album. The new album was called full circle. They toured on it. They were pretty successful. They actually put a video out from the, from Houston, from the uh, Cynthia Woods Mitchell 
Woods, you know, the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion. My sister is, was there. Which we go to, you and I have been there. Um, and um, it was, I don't, was it a pay-per-view event at one point? They, something about it was like they had like a hundred cameras that were, that were basically you can get like a full Oddly enough, full circle view. I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, it, that the album title was called Full Circle. Um, anyhow, the album Full Circle had a single called Overcome, and that's my number four song. It's a really, it's probably became one of the straightforward, heavier songs. And it also was um, the, 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 uh, I guess the the coming of Mark Tremonti because he he told Scott we're gonna do guitar solos on this album and Scott's like okay <laughs> so they did but um, that song's pretty cool number three from the first album my own prison my own prison um, I just think there's something really cool about that song the way it builds uh, I I love that song um, number two for me this is a unique one. Because when I was uh, playing in a band, so here's, I wasn't even playing in the band yet. I had been asked to sing Bad Religion and Keep Away covers for my old band, um, Electric Jellyfish. This was before I was in the band as a bass player. And so we played this little intimate show inside someone's house. And I sang, I ended up not singing Keep Away because I couldn't, uh, the way we were situated, I couldn't hear certain things. So I didn't sing it, but I sang Bad Religion. Love that song. Um, so after that little show, one of the guys, uh, the guitar player's name was Pete, comes up to me and says, hey, I need you to learn a Creed song. Okay, which one? Beautiful. It's off of Human Clay. It's the third song on the album. Listen to it. It's a very slow intro, but then it hits this heavy chord D, I believe, and you know, down tune. And it's super cool. The whole song is mellow until you get to the chorus. Awesome song. I love that song. Like, I dove headfirst into that song. I know that song forwards and backwards. Awesome song. And then, number one for me. I'm surprised you didn't pick this song if you were skimming through um, the first album. Unforgiven, one of their fastest, heaviest songs that they've had, um, really is kind of almost like an anomaly to their catalog because they don't do songs that fast. And that was one of the reasons why I really like it. Listen to it again this week. Pretty awesome. That's my number one song. Okay. I, I may not have listened to that one. I don't know. Um, you know, it was a lot for me to get through. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Creed's not your favorite, you know. I although I do know it's climbing up there. It's in your top ten now. <laughs> sure, lies, lies. Those are all lies. All right. Well, that's our big four Creed songs. That brings an end to this episode of Debating Metal. Remember, you can listen to us every week with a new episode on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Podbean, and all the others. So click like and subscribe as you should. And don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. 
If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment and ring that bell to be notified when we post a new episode. And remember to tune in next week as we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 